0: Later in the, in the Gospels, when we see that there is a replacement for Judas who needs to be chosen, one of the requirements is that that person had been present since the moment that Jesus had been baptized. After Jesus raises from the water, three incredible events that in Jewish tradition signified the ushering in of God's eternal kingdom. So there was the opening of the heavens, the descending of the Spirit upon Jesus, and a voice speaking from heaven. After this, this uh, baptism and this incredible scene, Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. So the 40 days in the wilderness is supposed to be a a reminder about the 40 years of wandering that the uh, the Jewish nation had to do out in the wilderness. Um, And so this reinforces the concept that Jesus is a new and better Israel, the nation of Israel reduced to one. After successfully enduring temptation at the hands of Satan, Jesus calls his first disciples, who are just simple, humble fishermen, made who he will make into fishers of men and become the driving force behind the church. And that brings us to our passage for today. So before I, I jump into today's scripture, let me, let me pray. Father, we worship you this morning for your incredible plan of redemption. So honored to be able to read the details of how your plan unfolds in your word. We confess our unworthiness to receive your grace and are so thankful to you for giving us grace despite that unworthiness. We confess to sometimes missing who you are because of who we want you to be. We confess to sometimes thinking of you as more useful than precious. I pray, Lord, for wisdom this morning to be faithful to your word. Holy Spirit, lead me to speak the words that you would have me to speak, not my own opinions, but to put your precious word first and foremost before these people. I pray for us, Father, that you would give us eyes to see uh, to see you for who you really are and help us to never lose sight of why you came. Pray, Lord, for ears and hearts of people sitting here today. They would be opened and softened. Prepare them to receive your words. Amen. So again, our scripture, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. So you can see this is a pretty long passage of Scripture, and there's a lot in here, Um, so I'm just going to jump right in, uh, starting in verse 21 and 22, They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They, uh, here of course is referring to Jesus and the new disciples, they went into Capernaum. The text doesn't say why Jesus started his ministry in Capernaum, but Capernaum would have been an ideal place to start if you wanted to have access to Jews and Romans, all living in close proximity and along a major trade route. Capernaum was a city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Gospel writers refer to it Jesus' own city, because after leaving Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum for at least a time. In New Testament times, Capernaum was a center of commerce. Fishing and trade were important, and the town was a Roman tax polling station. In comparison to the neighboring city of Magdala, Capernaum was very small, but it was situated on the road connecting the region with Damascus. Recent Franciscan excavators of Capernaum have noted an ancient milestone 100 meters northeast of the synagogue bearing the the inscription, the Emperor Caesar of the Divine, indicating it was a strategic post for Rome. All of these factors together would facilitate rapid spreading of news about Jesus throughout the region. So they went into Capernaum and immediately Jesus went into the synagogue. Mark uses the word translated here as immediately over 40 times throughout his gospel, giving a narrative a unique sense of urgency that shows how decisive Jesus' actions always were. He goes into Capernaum and immediately gets to work. Synagogues in the first century Israel were literally gathering places, that's what the word means, gathering places, where the people would gather and listen to the teachings from scripture and worship together. As opposed to the one temple in Jerusalem where sacrifices were made, synagogues could be found throughout the Mediterranean wherever ten or more Jewish adult males were present. It was common practice for the laity to do the expounding of Torah in the synagogues, and on this occasion it was Jesus. Jesus' teaching, however, is markedly different from any of the teaching the people had heard before. In verse 22, we see that the people are astonished at his teaching. They were literally struck by his teaching. What was so astonishing? It was the fact that Jesus spoke with authority. We can see examples of Jesus teaching with authority throughout the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks with bold authority when he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22. Jesus proclaims, I say to you, compare this to the Old Testament, the way we read the way prophets would routinely speak in the Old Testament. Just one example from Zechariah chapter 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. So Jesus is showing that he is no normal prophet. His words are authoritative in themselves. Mark compares Jesus' authoritative teaching with that of the scribes. So you'll you'll hear people say that Jesus was a good man or a good prophet. Well, Jesus doesn't speak like a prophet. He speaks with authority, and he knows who he is. And Jesus proclaims that he is authority. So Mark compares, like I say, Jesus, uh, Jesus' authoritative teaching with that of the scribes. Scribes were experts in Torah. Ezra was the first of these scribes. The scribes grew in importance as Hellenism spread throughout, uh, throughout the land, and, and by the time of Jesus, they would have had multiple functions. In order of precedence, a scribe would have been first and foremost a Torah professor. Second, they would have been a teacher and a moralist, someone who teaches and promotes right living. And then thirdly, they would have also been a civil lawyer, so they would have been adjudicating non-criminal cases between persons. Scribes were highly revered. They had the best seats in the synagogue. They were deferred to as they walked down the streets. People rose to their feet when scribes would enter the room. So even the scribes, as revered as they were among the Jews, they could not hold a candle to the teaching of Jesus. So much more powerful was Jesus' teaching than, than the teaching of the scribes that the people were astonished. And then, as if on cue, in response to this authoritative teaching of Jesus, we see an immediate attack from demonic forces. In verse 23, And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So here we see once again Mark showing the breakneck pace that events are unfolding. As soon as Jesus begins to teach, the demons respond. I'm trying to picture this in, in my mind when I was writing this and studying this. I'm imagining here, here's this man, Jesus, from Nazareth, of all places, standing up in the middle of the synagogue, teaching with this incredible authority that I've never heard before, and even the most respected spiritual leaders in my city, Don't teach this way. So I'm filling, my mind is filling with questions and astonishment. But before I can even ask a question, in comes this demonic presence into the middle of the synagogue, screaming about getting destroyed and calling Jesus the Holy One of God. And as a first century Jew, I would have recognized this phrase, Holy One of God, from my knowledge of the Old Testament. There's only one other person in the whole Old Testament who is called the Holy One of God, and that was Samson. And everybody knows who Samson is. Samson is the the long-haired judge with the incredible strength. And you might also recall that Samson was under a Nazarite vow. And now here is this Jesus, the Nazarene, being compared to Samson by this supernatural demonic force. So Mark is showing here that Jesus is a new and better Samson, able to bind the strong man. The phrase that Jesus uses to describe the devil later in the book of Mark in chapter 3. The strong man, the devil, who exercises power over the natural order. So even more impressive than Jesus' authority in teaching is his authority and power over the supernatural realm. And being supernatural powers themselves, the demons recognize the mission and authority of Jesus before humanity does. You may remember from when I preached the overview of the book of Mark, one of the key themes in the book of Mark is the concept of irony. So here are all of these religious people who have been studying Torah their whole lives and they have no idea what's going on. But the demons are able to come in and recognize Jesus for who he is. This goes to show, again, several things and these, again, are concepts reinforced throughout the book of Mark. Jesus is not the Messiah that people were expecting. It shows also that Jesus is not just a man but is also supernatural, which is why the demons can recognize him more easily. And finally, it also shows that miracles and amazing signs are not sufficient in and of themselves for people to become believers. There must be a revelation from the Spirit. We must be given the gift of faith and eyes to see the truth. So here is this demon who recognizes Jesus for who he is, and Jesus rebukes the demon. Now when I think of the word rebuke, I think of, uh, of like correcting my children, like knock it off, whatever it is that you're doing, this bad behavior that you're doing, stop that. But according to H.C. Key in his work, The Terminology of Mark's Exorcism Stories, the word used in this context actually is a technical term in Judaism by which evil powers are brought into submission and the way is thereby prepared for the establishment of God's righteous rule in the world. So this first clash between Jesus and the minions of Satan is no contest. The strong son of God, the new and better Samson, prevails over evil and binds the strong man. At this point, I can hardly imagine going through the minds of the people standing there. If it's me, I probably would have just been standing there, gaping, staring. So many incredible things have just happened before my eyes, not even having time to process them all. The people don't even know what to do. In verse 27, we see that they're just standing around talking to each other, trying to sort this all out. Another thing that's interesting to me is to note that it doesn't actually ever say what the teaching was. So what, what exactly was it that Jesus was saying that was so astonishing? Um, and, and I suggest that this is an intentional, intentional from Mark, is that we don't want to get hung up on what was the teaching. Instead, we want to be focused on the teacher. So not to get hung up on the teaching, but instead stay focused on the teacher. And so I think a key takeaway from this passage as well is that Jesus is a man of action. He's not all talk. There have been many holy men throughout history, lofty words, philosophies, to challenge even the most brilliant of minds, and Jesus certainly does have teaching that challenges and is deep. But Jesus is also a man of action. When he came into town, he asserted his authority with his teaching, and he backed up that teaching with these incredible actions. And the result is that the people were absolutely dumbfounded. And how does Jesus respond to this bewildered crowd? He leaves. I don't know why this struck me as so funny when I was reading this, but it's like, almost like a mic drop from Jesus. He rolls into town. He, he teaches in this incredible way that no one has ever heard before. A demon-possessed man comes in, and Jesus casts the demon out, and then he just leaves, just walks out. I just can't even imagine people's faces through this whole, through this whole scene. So that's where we go into our next section of text, starting in verse 29. Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. With James and John. Now, Simon's mother in law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So, after making this huge entrance into the local synagogue, Jesus heads over to Simon and Andrew's house to, to hang out with them, these poor fishermen in their house. So, I just wanted to, to pause for a second and say how incredibly different is Jesus than the celebrity pastors that we read about today. If this was me, honestly, and it had just been me that had broken into the scene like this and now am famous throughout this entire region, literally blowing everybody's minds with my teaching and all of my power, I can pretty much guarantee that the next thing I would do would not be to head over to some lowly fisherman's house to hang out with them and have dinner. I'd want to be out partying and rubbing elbows with all my new celebrity friends. And and that's what we see from high-profile celebrity pastors today, isn't it? That They're out hobnobbing with Hollywood, and they're out um, these huge uh, shows and performances that are out there, these carefully curated experiences. And then we've seen the result of that. So I'm not sure how much you follow these things, but there have been some very high-profile leaders in evangelical circles uh, recently in the last year caught committing some pretty egregious sins. And these sins that these people are committing are not just destroying them, but it's destroying people all around them and their families as well. And these are superstar pastors, literally superstars, not just in evangelical circles, but also in the Hollywood elite. Oh, that we could all follow more closely the example of Jesus. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, says, When he came out of the synagogue, where he had taught and healed with a divine authority, yet he conversed familiarly with the poor fishermen that attended him. And he did not think it below him, Let the same mind, the same lowly mind be in us that was in him. So Jesus, after crashing on the scene with this incredible display of authority over the supernatural realm, goes to his new friend's house. Once he gets there, he proceeds to heal Peter's mother-in-law. Such a beautiful juxtaposition of Jesus' incredible power and yet his humility and love for humanity. Note here, too, how Jesus doesn't even say anything. He just takes Peter's Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and lifts her up and I often find myself thinking about the incredible power of God who literally spoke the entire universe into existence ex nihilo from nothing that just blows me away I can't speak anything into existence other than hurt feelings God speaks everything into existence and here Jesus goes beyond that power without even using words and he heals Peter's mother-in-law from what was probably a very dangerous illness that she had. Fever is no joke. Such is the incredible power of Jesus. Just a touch. And he can execute incredible healing. I'd also like to call out something else that we see. Jesus' healing of Peter's mother-in-law is not just like she's getting a little better and now she's feeling better. No, she's she's better. She jumps up and she's in the house and now she's serving. Like she goes from deathly ill to totally restored. So Jesus' healing is not just you get better. Your healing is total restoration to wholeness. I'm sure we all know somebody who has suffered from COVID. I, we personally know several who have died. Um, and we know several who have also recovered. Um, recovery is debilitating. Recovery is long and arduous. Um, people who, I, know, I know people now who have had COVID weeks and months ago who are still dealing with lingering side effects. But that's not the case with Peter's mother-in-law. Immediately restored to wholeness. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-5 through five, talks about our new life in Jesus. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. So Jesus doesn't just remove sickness, restores to total health. We are not just forgiven of sin, we are made alive again and are now considered to be righteous in the eyes of God. It was a couple of years ago that I, I never really had put that together until a few years ago that, um, that becoming a Christian is not just about being not guilty anymore. It's about now being made into this new creation that is, that is righteous in God's sight. That's because we've put on the righteousness of Jesus like a garment over ourselves, so God looks at us and sees Jesus. So we're not just forgiven, but we're, we're also now made righteous. Moving on from the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, starting in verse 32, that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So as we read earlier in our passage, after the healing of the demoniac in the synagogue, Jesus' fame spread throughout the whole city. Of course, according to Jewish law, it would have been unlawful for the people to come to Jewish on the Sabbath during the day to bring their sick to him, so they had to wait until sundown. That's why it says that they came at sundown. So now we see everyone coming to bring their sick to him for healing. A couple of interesting points to call out from this passage. First, in verse 34, it says that he healed many who were sick. That doesn't mean that he healed many of the ones who came, like like some sort of a subset of them. It means that there were a whole lot of people that came and he healed them all. So a better translation here might be to say, great was the number of those who were healed. So this again underscores the incredible power and compassion of Jesus, that he would spend so much time healing and ministering to the sick and the hurting. Second, he would not permit the demons to speak. This is common throughout the gospel narrative where Jesus commands silence and won't allow people to talk about who he is. I admit that this kind of always puzzled me, and so it was exciting for this to study and kind of figure out what are the reasons why this may be. And, and as I was doing the studying, I found a bunch, but I've, I've got two of them here that I, that I specifically wanted to call out. So, so number one, we, as we know, right, from the re- repeated teaching of Mark, Jesus is not the Messiah who people were expecting. So this is, again, one of the core themes. And, and over and over again, we see Jesus completely shattering people's expectations. So by preventing people, and especially the, the demons, who were opposed to his mission anyway, from declaring him as the Messiah, he's avoiding wrong connotations of this military leader that the Jews thought he was going to be. That would have just confused people even more, and even worse, would have surely brought down condemnation and action from the Romans before the appropriate time. So Jesus is trying to avoid people thinking here comes this military leader, this military messiah that these people have that they've concocted in their mind, um, that they, this, 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 Jesus that they, the Messiah that they want him to be, not the Messiah that he is. Secondly, and, and, and possibly more importantly, Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would be a servant of the Lord, who is defined by restraint and humbleness. In Isaiah 42 verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. We can see this even more fully developed in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6, where we see that the servant is hidden in the shadow of God's hand, but God promises the servant will be a light unto the nations. In multiple places in the Psalms, we can see that the righteous one must be hidden. In Psalm seventeen eight. You can see, we can see, um, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. And then there are other examples in Psalm 27.5, Psalm 64.2, no other figure in the Old Testament, neither Abraham, Moses, Samuel, or any of the judges or kings, so closely corresponds to Jesus' ministry than that of the servant of the Lord. So our last section of text for this morning begins in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So here first we can see a glimpse into Jesus' personal prayer life. It's amazing to see the role that prayer played in the life of Jesus. You would think that Jesus the God-man would have no need for communion with the Father. What's the point? He is God. Why pray? And yet, we see the exact opposite throughout the Gospels. We see that even Jesus cannot extend himself in compassion without first filling himself from the source with communion with the Father. E.M. Bounds, I found this quote from E.M. From e. Bounds. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men of prayer. So, a couple of lessons we can learn from Jesus on prayer. Jesus set aside a a specific time to go and pray. Even more specifically, the first moments of the day. Before any people or any of the cares of the world could come to interrupt him, Jesus made it a point to pray first. So then I find myself asking, do I make time for daily communion with God? Or do I find that there's excuses, that there's things getting in the way? Things come up throughout the day. I think you all know as well as I do that if we allow... Uh, If we don't prioritize things, they're never going to get done. So maybe we should follow Jesus' example, get up a little earlier in the morning if we need to, make time for prayer. Jesus also chose a place, a desolate place, a place where there isn't anything around, so that he would not likely be disturbed. Some of the sweetest times that I've ever had in prayer have been in a dark closet, free from distraction where I can get intimately close to my Father. And it's in those moments that I feel his presence most clearly. So Jesus chooses a specific time, he prioritizes that prayer, and he chooses a specific place where he's not going to be interrupted. Of course, then we see that he does get interrupted, because as Jesus is praying, Peter and those that are with him come to him, interrupt him, and announce, everyone is looking for you. It's interesting to note that in the Gospel of Mark, the word that Mark uses here for looking for is used 10 times in the gospel, but it always has a negative connotation to it. It seems that what Mark is trying to say here is that these, um, these, these interruptions of Jesus like this are revolving around obstruction of Jesus and his ministry. It seems that Mark is trying to make a point that seeking for Jesus out of empty enthusiasm for personal gain, this is not a virtue. And clamoring crowds are not necessarily a sign of success or even an aid to ministry. Enthusiasm should not be confused with faith. Enthusiasm should not be confused with faith. So despite this apparent attempt by the the disciples to capitalize on Jesus' notoriety as a miracle worker, Jesus remains undeterred. Without any rebuke, he just gently reminds them the whole reason why he came, to preach the good news throughout the land. So then, what then shall we do? based on what Mark is telling us from this passage of Scripture, how can we apply this to our lives? So I have three things. And you guys know that I like to use these little sentences to help us remember, so here's, here's my sentence. Know the real Jesus, experience true healing, and then get on mission. So know the real Jesus, experience true healing, and then get on mission. So, knowing the real Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. It's imperative that we know who the real Jesus is. Again, we see throughout the book of Mark, people have these conceptions of who Jesus is that are not true. They think he's going to be a military leader who's going to ride in on a horse into Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman Empire and set up Israel as this uh, ruling nation over the whole world. And, and, And Jesus is going to do that. But first he had to come as the suffering servant. They just missed that first part. They didn't see the suffering servant. They just saw the military ruler. And I I think that we can even see that, apart from the story in, in the gospel story, we can even see what's happening in the world today, where people in the name of Jesus have done some pretty horrible things in our nation over the last few weeks. This should be a stark reminder to us that it's very easy to fall into idolatry. As humans, we don't want to worship God. We want to naturally worship ourselves or gods that we've created for ourselves. So let's learn from Mark's warning to not allow our expectations of Jesus or our expectations of what we wish God would be to cloud our ability to see Him for who He really is. John Piper has a calls this passage of Scripture Colossians one verses fifteen through twenty three. I don't remember his exact words, but it's something to the effect of the most whole and complete picture of the person and work of Jesus in Scripture. So I'm going to read that so it can help us to know who Jesus really is. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So here we see throughout, in this section of Colossians, this this incredible description of of Jesus and who he is. The image of the invisible God. So we see God taking on flesh, the God-man. The firstborn of all creation. Jesus is not a. That isn't saying that he is. That he was the first created thing. That's not true. Jesus was not created. That's not what this is saying. What it is saying is that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, making him the firstborn of all things that were created in heaven and on earth. All the visible and all the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, so talking about supernatural powers and then powers and authorities and rulers here on earth, all of the kings and queens of the earth that have come and gone, the Democrat Party, the Republican Party, Party, all of these political things that will one day be gone and forgotten about in history all of those things were created for him he is before all things so Jesus is eternal just like how God is eternal all things hold together in him so he is Sovereignly controlling everything. I think R.C. Sproul is the one who says it. There are no maverick molecules in the universe. Everything is under control and being held together by God, specifically by Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. So God, he is all of us together. He is our head now. If we are truly a part of the family of God, if we are truly a part of the body, he is the head. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So his resurrection is making him the firstborn from the dead so that in him, that in everything, he might be preeminent. So that means that he is going to be the the most glorified. He is preeminent, meaning at the top of, the head of, everything, because it's all going to be resurrected through him, him being the first of those resurrected. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So here in this man, the fullness of God. Lots of heresies throughout the years that have said that Jesus was either just a man or was just God or it was just a spirit, right? Not really flesh and not really God. Neither of those things are true. He is the God-man. He is fully human and yet also fully God. And then why? Why is this fullness of God pleased to dwell in him? so that it could reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how did he do that? By making peace, the blood of his cross. So the sacrifice, the atonement that he made on the cross made peace. We were enemies of God, the Bible says. We were at enmity against God. And this, the peace that was made, it was peace. We were at war. Now the blood of the cross has been this sacrifice and atonement that has made now peace between us and God. And then going on to describe us and our state, alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Bible is very clear that we are born evil and we are born under condemnation. We need to be saved. We have now been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? To present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So there is this, this concept of this walk of salvation, a life as a Christian, Right that where we don't have to, I don't have time to get into to too much because it can be kind of complicated, but you've got to continue. You've got to persevere, and that's, that's, that is on you and on God. Thankfully, God perseveres, and God um, preserves us to the end. If we are truly his children, he gives us the strength to preserve and persevere, but that perseverance is a requirement, so we don't shift from the hope of the gospel that we heard. And it's been proclaimed in all creation, and then Paul ministering that. So, so this is the person and the work of Christ that we need to know. We need to know Jesus for who he really is, understanding his divinity, understanding the atonement that paid the penalty for our sins, destroying death itself by his resurrection. If we don't know these things about Jesus, we don't really know the real Jesus. And we have to know him, because if we, can't, if we don't know who he is really, then how can we possibly have faith in him? And it's only then, once we know the real Jesus, can we experience true healing. So that's number two, experiencing true healing. So I talked about COVID a little earlier in my message. And um, there are many ways to get healed from COVID. There's many ways to prevent getting sick with COVID. Um, there, there are now vaccines. There are um, ways that you can live a healthy lifestyle to avoid getting sick. You can wash your hands. You can wear a mask. You can use hand sanitizer. But, and, and then once you do get sick, there's medicines and things that they can give you to help you get better. But none of this is true healing. The true healing I'm talking about is the type of healing that, that we had when we were restored from death to life. Just like Peter's mother-in-law. Just like the dry bones that uh, we talk about in the book of Ezekiel. The things that were dead that have now been made alive, truly healed. Peter's mother-in-law, deathly ill one moment, up the next, walking around like nothing ever happened. Uh, and I'm all, uh, also, just to be clear too, I'm, I'm also, what I'm not saying is that there isn't also miraculous physical healing that can happen as well. I, I believe the Bible teaches that miraculous healing from physical illness still occurs today. I've seen miraculous physical healing in people. We had a friend that we went to church with and he had cancer. And he was really sick. One day, got so bad that he was unconscious, and they had to take him to the hospital. And we prayed. As a church, we came together and prayed for him, and he was miraculously healed. The, the doctors and the nurses themselves said, this is a miracle. We can't explain this. But then, of course, he got sick again later, and he didn't recover that time. Because there's going to be death. This life ends in death. That's what happens. But we can have true spiritual healing through Jesus so that when we do die, our, the rest of our life begins. There's more to life than just this life. So again, I, I believe in miraculous healing from physical illness, but the true healing that we need to have is the true healing that comes from an encounter with Jesus and from being fully restored by Him. And then the whole reason why, why is it as Christians that once we become saved, we don't poof and disappear up to heaven? What are we still doing here? If the whole point of being a Christian that, that was taught basically to me the whole time I was a kid, which is the whole point of being a Christian is so that you don't go to hell when you die. Well, then what is the point? Why am I still here then? If I'm a Christian now, what am I still doing here? If that's the whole point, because it isn't the whole point. The point is, is that now we have a mission to do. Now we need to go and make disciples. I was reading something the other day about it seems that the, the church has lost sight of the Great Commission in, in many cases. Not all churches, but, but in many cases the church has lost sight of the Great Commission in favor of political party affiliation or in favor of some sort of whatever it is that, that, we're, that we're getting wrapped up in and we're forgetting about going and making disciples, preaching the gospel, raising and, and, and teaching people to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. Look at the story of Peter's mother-in-law. Right after her healing, she immediately got up and got on the business of serving him. What more appropriate response could there be to God's grace to us than our own gratitude? Gratitude should flow. from our, That should be our response to God's grace. These works and good deeds don't save us. They come after. We do these works and good deeds because we were saved. We don't do, uh, we don't do good works and good deeds to get saved. We do them because we're saved when we didn't deserve it, by the way. We were saved when we didn't deserve it. So knowing who the real Jesus is, and then having received the true healing that only he can give, it's time to get on mission. And I found this, this really cool um, psalm. from. It was written in 1874. Not, uh, not, a, not a psalm, sorry, a hymn. It was written in 1874, written by um, Francis Ridley Havergal. And I'm just going to read it to you. It says, Take my life, and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my King, Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee, filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite what I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose, every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee. Father, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you that we don't have to wonder about who you are and if we can truly know you. Thank you for healing in our souls that allows us to have true fellowship with you. Father, right now I pray that if there is anyone here who doesn't truly know you or hasn't been truly healed by you, I pray, Father, today would be that day. The day that, they would, that you would call them out of darkness into your presence. Lord, I, I, we ask for the power to go into the world and make disciples of all nations as, as you have commanded us to do. Help us to see, Lord, that the issues that are facing our world and the tragedy and the sadness and the horror that's facing our world, that's what we're here for. That's our responsibility. It's not about a political party. They're not going to fix it. We're going to fix it. So, Lord, I just pray for the power. And I pray for the motivation for us to get on mission. Help us to never lose that missional focus. In Jesus' name, amen.